Well, good morning. And my name is Josh. Uh, I'm a visitor here. Uh, it's good to see everybody, um, and it's great to, to be back. Uh, just a couple of things before we kind of jump in. First of all, um, I don't take the whole four weeks as a vacation, only part. Uh, we take uh, two weeks, one week kind of a vacation, another week as a staycation, and then a couple of weeks of study and prayer. And uh, so we've had a great time as a family. Uh, we went down to Missouri to uh, Table Rock Lake. Uh, down in the Ozarks, which is a great, great place. The second year we've gone there and really enjoyed it, and um, that was great. And then we came back, and, and so um, we've had a good time. I want to thank the elders in the church for letting us do that and kind of get that break away uh, to recoup and study and pray and, and all of those things. So grateful for that. I also want to thank the elders for preaching. Um, I thank Paul Cohn for his sermon um, I thank Isaac for working hard on, on those two sermons that he preached. Very good. Um, I'm a little partial to Paul Cohn's sermon because it's all about supporting your pastor. So, good. Uh, Hebrews 13, man, obey your leaders. Right on, rock on. You know what I mean? A little passive-aggressive brainwashing there on my part, but, uh, you know, it's all good. Um, and so, but I do want to thank them. For the, it's, you know, to put in effort into sermons is really hard. And then uh, y'all have to pray for me because I've got to get used to doing this again. I'm still trying to find my swing up here, you know what I mean? And so I got to do that. And then for the first time in my life, I got to preach for five nights in a row. So I need like 24-hour prayer vigils. Uh, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. Uh, so I got to preach today, then preach tonight. Isaac's going to be leading music tonight at that tabernacle place for the revival. And then my brother's going to come in and do some music. So I'm excited about that, but I'm terrified at the same time. I have no idea what to expect. So uh, take that with what it is. Today, we're going to start a new series that we're calling Exiles. Exiles. And we're going to be going through the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible or you got a, uh, or you got a phone with a Bible on it, uh, you can pull that out and uh, punch up First uh, Peter. We're going to start in chapter 1 and verse 1. And we're really talking about how to be a follower of Jesus in a fallen world. Exiles. How do we, how do we outline being a follower of Christ in such a time and in such a world as the one that we have? And tonight, uh, the, the focus for the series of sermons this week is kind of a similar theme. I'm kind of titling it uh, broadly, The Living God in a Lost World. So really focusing on how do you be a follower in a fallen world? So as you're doing that, let me just pray and ask God to give me strength this morning to, to adequately preach this word. God, thank you. Uh, for this morning. Thank you for the awesome privilege it is to preach. Uh, thank you for the awesome privilege it is for us to be your church. Uh, and I, I thank you for everyone here, uh, whether believers or explorers or seekers or whoever is here, Lord, just thank you that they're here. And I pray that you would speak to all of us where we're at, that you would love us where we're at. Um, that uh, in challenging and, and, and difficult times, you would give us the encouragement and the conviction that we need to follow you. And, and God, I pray that as I, as I speak today, that my words would just be owned by you, that, that you would give me wisdom for this particular service, for this particular congregation, uh, for this particular time. And so I just... Thank you for that, and, and give you praise in advance for answering that prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you do not belong to this world. You do not belong to this place. This is not your home. And I find that to be extremely good news. Amen? It is a good thing, a sweet thing. It is 
honey on the lips to know that when I look out and I experience this world, I don't belong here. My citizenship is in heaven. My home is owned by my heavenly father that he is preparing for me. My mom used to tell me when I was little, I used to ask my mom, what's Jesus doing? I was little. I wasn't like a teenager, but you know what I'm saying. I was little. I was, What's Jesus doing? And she used to say, he's building your mansion. He's gone to prepare a place for you. That is good news. I am and you are as believers in Jesus Christ exiles. Foreigners in a strange land. Put here on purpose, but... Not put here permanently. Amen. But I'm also broken about our world, aren't you? I'm stressed out about the fact that the Holy Spirit has given some stuff in my heart and in my mind. And and the Father has given me Jesus. And I've got this this word that's before me that, that I get to study and read. And when I experience God and see him and meet him and I'm in relationship and then I go out into the world, even though I don't belong to it, I'm broken and burdened for our world, aren't you? And I'm frankly, I'm stressed out. How many of y'all are stressed out and anxious about our times, right? It's, it's tough because, and there's a couple reasons. One reason is, is that there's a part of me that when I see what's going on in culture, in society, and in the world, there's a part of me that a part of my heart is attracted to that. I, I, there's a part of me that's still sinful, that's still flesh, that's still, that's still kind of uh, attracted to pride or envy or greed or, or the things of this world, right? And then there's another part, I see it and I just get angry and I get mad and I get fearful, And I don't know how to do that. I don't, I don't know how to be a part of another world and live in this world. And I need help. Because we live in a world that's worldly. What is worldliness? Worldliness is living our lives out as if God doesn't exist. And that's what's happening in culture and society. David Wells uh, defined worldliness. If I still have it. Oh, oh wait. Do I have it? I lost it. I lost it. Do I have it? I don't have it. David Wells (laughs) defined worldliness as defining righteousness as abnormal and defining wickedness as normal. That's worldliness. It's displacing God in such a way to where you look at what's wrong and you say that is right. And you look at what's right and you say that is wrong. That's worldliness. And that's what's happening, isn't it? Isaiah said, and Isaiah is much better than David Wells, by the way. Can I get an amen? And I've got Isaiah before me. And Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good. And good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's that's what's happening. Let's just come to terms with it, whether we struggle with this, and that's what's happening. Planned Parenthood? That is not normal. That is a culture of death manifesting itself. That is the taking of life. Are you kidding? And they call it normal. It's okay. A a sports icon doesn't want to be a man anymore. That beloved, no matter how you, the smoke clears, everything is gone when the truth is laid on the table. That is not normal. You know what's normal? Let's just say it. I, 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 don't, I don't want to be overly cavalier. I don't want to be hateful. I want to be loving. I want to represent Jesus came to save us as sinners. Amen? 
But let's call it what it is. It's sin. And what's right is heterosexual marriage. Amen? What's right is is sex inside of a context of a covenant before God. And that the marriage bed is protected. But you know what? The world looks at that and says that is not normal. The world says that that is weird and strange and off-putting. How am I supposed to live as a loving, gracious follower of Jesus in a world that defines things like this? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to hate it and, and confront it and, 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 and get on Facebook and say nasty things? Am I supposed to tweet things and say, you know, trick all you people? Or do I just not say anything at all? Do I accommodate this? And then, how do I worship God in such a world? How can I sustain exciting, hopeful, faithful worship without giving in to fear or anxiety? How do I live as an exile? Man, I need some answers. Do you need some answers? Because I'm scared. I want answers for my daughters, for my family. And you know what? I want to be a guy that loves all people. I want to I hug people and attract people to Jesus. I want to be in the world without being of it. But I don't know how to do that. That's why I need First Peter. That's why I need this book. I need this letter. Because Peter is writing to Christians who are living in a pagan time. Who are trying to figure out... What's the difference between walking in the truth of, 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 of Jesus and not compromising with the world? And not only that, but these Christians are dealing with persecution because of their off-putting faith. There's two kinds of persecution. Thomas Watson has a great book, great Puritan, 17th century, like forever ago. He's got this great book called The Body of Divinity. He said there's two kinds of persecutions. There's persecution of the hand, and there's persecution of the tongue. Persecution of the hand is when you physically suffer for your faith. And these Christians are physically, in some cases, suffering for their faith. You see that? They're exiles being beat up by the world, literally. But then there's persecution of the tongue, and that's when there's the verbal kind of worldview persecution, the, the you don't belong, what is, what's up with you Christian people? What is it up with you and, and, and the values that you have? That's what they're going through. And they need help just like we do. How do I do this thing in a way that represents forgiveness and grace and Jesus dying for sinners and yet doesn't give in to the times? And so when we come here, we seek answers. And so to set up this book and this letter, we've got to kind of outline kind of the intro. And let's just get through the first couple of verses today. First uh, Peter chapter 1. Let me read the first two verses. As we start this great book, uh, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, And for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. A few few facts about this that's going to set up and even be helpful to us already this morning on how to be exiles living in a lost world, how to follow Jesus in a fallen world. And the first thing is the author of 1 Peter. Who is the author who wrote 1 Peter? Peter. You're like, man, you learned a lot on vacation. (laughs) That study break is blowing me away with your genius for biblical interpretation. Your exegesis is so good. You're brilliant, man. Brilliant. Peter wrote the book. But here's the thing. Many scholars question the fact that Peter wrote this book. They say even though it says that Peter wrote it, He probably didn't, and they have several reasons why. Let me just give you a couple of them. One reason why is because the Greek is so polished. In other words, it's a well-written letter. It's literarily 
beautiful. It's a masterpiece of a letter. And they look at Peter that they learned about in Sunday school class when he was following Jesus, the bumbling, stumbling, yapping at the mouth, getting everything wrong, speaking things and, and cussing at times, amen? And they go, that guy could not have written this book. And not only that, but he never brings up Jesus stories. He never, he never talks about, you know, we sat around the campfire with Jesus one night. And we were fishing. Or after fishing. I don't know how you sit around a campfire and fish at the same time. But with Jesus, all things are possible, right? <laughs> he doesn't bring up any stories. He doesn't get nostalgic. He doesn't reminisce. He doesn't like, he doesn't, he, they were like, if Peter wrote this book, he surely would have talked about how great Jesus was when he asked, every, when everybody dropped their stones and forgave the adulteress. He, he surely would have brought up all these great stories about following Jesus, but that's exactly what he doesn't do. How could Peter... The cussing fisherman, the rough around the edges, write such an eloquent book and not bring up Jesus. There's a t-shirt out there you can buy. You can get online and Google this if you want. The t-shirt says, I love Jesus and I cuss a little. That's Peter to these people. That's Peter. Peter would have wore that t-shirt. And you know what? You know what the failure is in scholarship? The failure in scholarship is the lack of acknowledgement that people can actually change. That Jesus didn't come into Peter's life to leave him as a cussing fisherman who just sat around and nostalgically talked about Jesus stories all day. Jesus came into Peter's life to transform him from a cussing fisherman to an apostle who teaches people how to be transformed. Peter's whole life, the trajectory of his life from the moment he met Jesus at Galilee, the the, the moment that he was walking on that water, and he was so stupid, wasn't he? I mean, he never had a sober-minded moment except for when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Outside of that, he was pretty much a failure when he first met Jesus. He sank in the water. He denied Jesus three times. He's always getting mad. Remember when he chopped off the ear of that guy? You remember that? That's Peter. He's just like, I don't like you. You're trying to arrest Jesus. Ear gone. Jesus is like, dude, what are you doing? Jesus got to pick up the ear and fix it. Right? But he's older here. He's old. He's seasoned. He no longer holds that sword. He holds the word. And he wants to tell Christians, listen, listen, take off your dumb t-shirt and grow up. Be transformed. Don't abuse the grace and the love of God. Peter's encouraging to us on two levels. Number one, if we're lost today and in bondage, he reminds us that Jesus meets us where we're at. He can save us from darkness and bondage. He can take us from nothing to something. He meets us right where we're at. But he encourages us, on the other hand, once you're found by Jesus, let's follow him. Let's see where he's going to take us in transformation. That's why he says, here in 1 Peter, uh, he he says, uh, uh, let me find it. That's why he says in 1 Peter... Chapter 1, let me read this to you, starting verse 13. Listen to the way this new man, this grown, seasoned believer now, this, this, this transformed guy speaks about the grace of God. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I mean, we could ask him, when did you ever have a sober-minded moment, Peter? But he does now. He talks about not returning to our former passions, being obedient children, because we've set our hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me give you another example. In chapter 1, verses 22 and following, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth 
for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Again, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Peter says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up. Everybody say grow up. Grow up up in salvation. I can understand why we might think Peter didn't write this book. I really can. I mean, if I think about Peter alone, I go, there ain't no way he wrote this book. But when I think about Jesus... When I think about grace, when I think about what God does in our lives, what God has even done in my life, I go, oh, no, Peter wrote this book because he's grown up. He's grown up. He's an apostle. He's, he's somebody who's been transformed by the grace of God. And you know what? You ask, you ask yourself, how can I live in this world? How can I be in exile, living in such a lost time? A a time that makes no sense, a culture of death, when everybody's going nuts around me. How How can I live out my faith as an exile in this time? And listen to me. You know what? Focus on what God's doing in your life. Don't... Don't focus on everybody else's problems. Focus on what God's doing in your life. Because God's doing some stuff. And he's growing us all up so that we can walk in a new way of life. Oh, no. No. The author of 1 Peter is Peter. No doubt about it. And so we move from the author and we say, okay, now I'm pretty confident I know who wrote this book. Uh, But who's the audience of this book? Who's the audience of this book? And the audience of this book is the church. Look at what he says, and I love the way he talks, he, he, he has uh, this outline. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's talking about the church in all of these different locations. Um, and, and basically, that's a, a mail route. The person who was taking this letter to the churches that Peter wrote, he would go along that mail route and would drop off this letter to be read to the churches in all of these different places. I think that's kind of cool. It's kind of like it's one church, isn't it, in many locations. It's one church in several places. And what it tells us is it gives us a little bit of the nature of what the church is. And, and if, if you don't mind, let me outline this for you real quick. The church is, first of all, capital C, invisible, universal people of God who believe in Jesus Christ. What is the church? The church is composed of all believers around the world in every location, in all of history, they belong to one body called the church under God and Jesus Christ. That's the invisible, universal, capital C church. So it doesn't matter if you're a believer in Pontus, if you're a believer in Cappadocia, if you're a believer in East Peoria, you belong to the global, universal people of God. There is one church, not many churches. There is one denomination invisibly, not many denominations. The denomination is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all believers who genuinely believe in Jesus Christ belong to his church. That's capital C. But there's a small cap C church, which we call the visible, local expression of The invisible church. And there are many churches when it comes to small c. We are a local expression of the universal, invisible body of Christ. We are making visible at 400 South Pleasant Hill Road in East Peoria. We are making visible what is already an invisible reality. And so all those churches in Cappadocia and Pontus and... Galatia, they represent this larger church body. And you know what, Crosspoint? That's what we exist to do, isn't it? We exist to manifest visibly what is invisible. And what is invisible? The supremacy of God. The glory of God. 
we manifest invisibly the, the, the riches of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We manifest visibly the declaration that God is supreme and that all people are called to repent and trust in Jesus and join his church. With our voices, we sing songs to bring hearing to this invisible reality of the glory of Christ. With our preaching, we, we use words to bring into the air this, this sound of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners. We exist to manifest the invisible global church. That's what Crosspoint does. And you know what that means? That means we're not to be involved in parochial, unimportant issues. We are to be involved in the global work of God in saving people and bringing light to darkness. We are to gather people and say, man, there is something going on you cannot see, but we will make it visible for you through the way we serve you and preach and reach you and make disciples of all nations. What, what did Jesus, what, what is the Great Commission? Jesus said, therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I am with you to the end of the world. We are to make disciples for Jesus. Because invisibly, Jesus reigns. You say, can you break down the obedience part when he says, teaching you to observe all you, you've commanded all that Jesus has commanded and I can it's called the great commandment you shall love the Lord God with all your heart mind soul and strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you know what here's the truth if the great commandment existed in our world perfectly if people loved God with all their heart mind soul and strength and loved their neighbor as themselves the church would be out of work And so because the great commandment doesn't exist in the hearts of people, the local church exists visibly to call people to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength by believing in Jesus and love each other as themselves in small groups, in community, through service. And when Jesus comes back, we will be the church with a whole different mission and a whole different purpose. But until that moment, we are to make disciples for Jesus Christ. The Great Commission exists because the Great Commandment doesn't, and we are making visible locally that goal. Amen? The church is the audience. And so when Peter is writing 1 Peter, he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. He's talking to people who belong invisibly to this and to churches that are trying to locally make visible this invisible reality of God's people. That's why it's written to us. And so we know who the author is, and we know who the audience is. The final question is, what's the message? And in this greeting, he outlines kind of the DNA of the rest of the, of the letter. He, he kind of talks about, in theological terms, what he's going to make practical for all believers. And really, the message is found there in that phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion. That word dispersion is from the Greek word diaspora. It, it really means that it really stood for in the Old Testament all the Jewish people who were scattered all over the world because of exile, because of being uh, driven from their land, from the promised land. And when you thought about the Jewish people in Old Testament terms, you thought they are the diaspora, they are the dispersed, the scattered people of God, the descendants of Abraham. But we know that this is not written to primarily Jewish people. This is written to Christians. And so Peter is applying that Old Testament word and language for the scattered Jews. And he's referring to the church, to Christians. And he's saying, you now as believers in Jesus Christ, you are the new diaspora of God. You are the new scattered people of God, representing him everywhere as exiles. And so we come back to that phrase, exile, and what does that mean? That word mean, what does it mean to be an exile? What it means to be an exile is it means to live in a country that's not your own according to the values and the truths of a country that you are on your way to or outside of. You are full-time residents in a country that is not your own representing a country that you're going to or that you're from and that you're on your way to. That's what it means to be an exile. We don't belong here. 
We, we are citizens in heaven, but we are exiled here and to live according to that citizenship in heaven. We are strangers in a strange land. And we are exiles not only because we're different from the world, but we're exiles to be a blessing to the world as well. In fact, significantly in Jeremiah chapter 29, and uh, I'm getting a little rusty with my slides. It's been so long that I forgot to get a slide for this. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. In fact, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Many people know this chapter. Y'all, y'all are familiar with what's, uh, uh, what's a f- kind of a famous passage um, where, you know, God says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Many graduates get that and put it in a frame or it's on coffee mugs and, you know, it's tweeted all the time and all that. It's it's a really great passage. But when you look up ahead of that or before that, there's an important passage that sometimes we forget. And this passage is written to exiles. It's written to Jewish people who have been exiled. And looking at Jeremiah 29, look at starting in verse 4. says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now think about this. I want you to think about this. Babylon is as pagan as you get. I mean, you think, that, you think what we're going through right now is bad. Babylon was like, whoa. Everybody say, whoa. You know, Isaiah was like, whoa is you. Okay, whoa to these people. And they were, they were messed up. So we don't know what God's going to tell these exiles, his people, to do as they live their life in this city of Babylon. So look at what he says, verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. We don't necessarily have to do that one, but I got an amen from a dad of some daughters down here. Amen. But you can if you want, I guess. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek. Now watch this. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, he's saying what I want you to do, what God is telling his exiles to do is he says, I want you to be a blessing. I want you to live your lives as full participants in their life. I want you to be a blessing, to shine a light. I want you to seek the welfare of the city. I don't want you to go live there and just point fingers and say, oh, you know, you're the bad guys and we're the good guys. And what? No, I, I want you to live there and I want you to represent me in a loving way and seek the welfare of people. What does it mean to be in exile? It means to cross the line into the lives of sinners into a sinful world to live out our lives there without crossing the line into sin ourselves. Amen. We've talked about this before, and First Peter's really going to help draw this out for us as a church, but here's the thing. It's kind of like this. It's like some churches, they look at the world and they go, you know, we're just going to have a bunker mentality. We're going to completely remove ourselves. We're going to bury ourselves underground. We're not going to touch that dirty world. We're going to stay, as, and we're going to pretend like we can go to a comfortable, safe place and safe part of the city where nobody can affect me and I won't be tainted by that unholy pagan world. And of course, there's already a problem with that because no matter where you go, you're tainted. Amen. Build your bunker, and you're taking your own sin with you. Go up on the highest mountain into the deepest monastery in the most secret room, and there your sin will be right there with you. You don't even need other people around you to help you sin. Amen? Now, sometimes people make it even more difficult, but I'm just saying. Right? Like, so it's already a problem. But God's like, man, you got to come up out of your bunkers. 
We're going to have to be strong and courageous and believe that no matter where we go, God is with us. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Take this land. Claim the glory of God in the the people because people need the light and the love and the forgiveness and the truth of God. They need to repent and believe and be saved from that fire, eternal fire. Think about hell. Think about somebody going into a lost eternity without God. Jesus said... Fear him who can put you into hell. The Bible says that hell is an eternal fire. It's the blackest of darkness. If we could see it for what Jesus said it was and what Revelation says it was, you know what? We wouldn't want our worst enemy to go there, would we? And yet heaven and the kingdom of God is a glorious home where the good and loving God, Jonathan Edwards said about heaven, heaven is a world filled with love, real love, satisfying love. And he's invited us to come and to take others with us and we are to bear witness and seek the welfare of people in the city. That's what it means to be in exile. It doesn't mean to not participate. It means to participate. But we always participate As we're on our way to the city of God. You see, that's what it means to be an exile. So being an exile, you could say, is a few things. Number one, an exile, it means that we're different from the world. Number two, it means that we're to be a blessing to the world. But three, and certainly not last in order. In fact, it's the primary thing that makes us exiles. You know what really makes us exiles above all else? We are the elect of God. How do you become an exile for God? God chooses you. He comes, and that's what election is. You know what election is? It's God out of a mass of humanity, and he elects some to participate in his grace and undeserved favor from him and to get something that they don't deserve, which is eternal life with him. And he says, you are exiles because I chose you to be exiles. I've come to you. I have called you by name. People might say, you know, hey, Josh, when did you find Jesus? Wrong question. When did Jesus find me? Election. It says here that they are the elect, in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Some people use that word foreknowledge and they go, well, God saw Josh before he was even born and saw that he was going to be tall And strong and charming. Work with me, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Work with me. And because of those good features in my life, and because he would see something ahead of time that I would believe in Jesus, he elected me based on knowing those facts about my life. But here's the truth. The truth about the word knowledge in the Old Testament and throughout the whole Bible is it's not just like an accountant term, like counting money or, or doing debits and credits. Uh, knowledge in the Bible is an intimate covenant love that God uses to choose people before they're even born or before they do anything good or bad. In fact, God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, Before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. That is covenant love knowledge. God loved me intimately. He, he elected me and all believers before the foundation of the world. Let me, because this is such an interesting topic, let me give you a couple of supplemental passages Because Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 talks about foreknowledge and predestination. Basically saying the same thing Peter just said, but differently. Sometimes hearing it differently brings clarity in our minds as to what we're talking about. He says in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now... Now, there it is. 
foreknowledge, predestination. Again, you could look at that and you could say, well, he foreknew, saw the decision for Jesus and predestined it to happen. But when you do the etymology of the word, you do the history of the word knowledge and foreknowledge, you know that that's not what it means. It means he loved and therefore he predestined out of an unconditional love, unmerited grace, those who would belong to him. One more passage to bring even more clarity. When you, when you look at uh, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4, it's really saying the exact same thing that Romans 8, 29 is saying, but again, differently, and that difference brings clarity. He says, Paul says, even as he chose us, you could say elected us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Everybody say, in love. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That, that phrase, in love, is the same thing as saying he foreknew. Same thing. And we always know anywhere we meet the love of God, it's always unconditional, isn't it? It's never conditional. It's always unconditional. In love, he predestined us. He foreknew us. We are elected according to the foreknowledge of the Father. And so with this, I mean, this is a greeting. This is a, when we come back to 1 Peter and we come to these two verses, we see a greeting here. And in the greeting, Peter is outlining some of the most profound theology in the world. Because you see, look at verse 2. Put your eyes on verse 2 in 1 Peter chapter 1. And then I'll kind of bring this together. It says, you are the elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You know what I see there? I see the Trinity. Do you see the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you know what he's outlining? He's outlining a divine conspiracy. And that divine conspiracy involves all three persons of the one God and all three persons' role. And what is the Father's role? He chose us before the foundation of the world. He foreknew and elected us before we were even born, even before Genesis 1-1. And then the Holy Spirit came, and it says that the Holy Spirit sanctified us. In the Bible, sanctified can either refer to progressive growth in holiness or it can refer to justification holiness, like we're made holy. Once we believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit makes us holy in the sight of God. Isn't that good news? That's why we're called saints. Saints is the same word, uh, kind of root word of sanctified. It means that we're holy. We're the holy ones before God. And you know why we're holy? Because of Jesus' holiness. And the Holy Spirit applies that and sanctifies us. And then it says, number three, the son. What did the son do? He came and purchased that choice by dying and giving his blood on the cross. So here's the order of events when we get saved. We get saved because God chose us before the foundation of the world. We get saved because Jesus came, the son, and he said to the father, yep, I'm going to go purchase whom you've saved. So I'm going to go die on the cross for their sins. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise again. And then the Holy Spirit comes, brings conviction, brings renewal, so that we will look to Jesus, and by faith in Jesus, we will be saved. That is the order of events in our salvation. That is the divine conspiracy that if you're a believer, has come together in your history and your time to make you a follower and to make you an exile. You're like, why is that so important? Well, it's not important to have theological conversations at nauseum and to have armchair theology where we talk about whether we're Calvinists or Arminians or whatever. That's not the reason why Peter's writing that. You know why Peter's writing that? He's writing that for the practical purpose of comfort in a world of suffering and darkness. He's saying to these believers who are suffering in a dark world, who don't feel special, who have no status, who are going through all kinds of difficulties in their life and in their churches and in their, and in their society and culture. And Peter is saying, I want you to remember what your status is because what makes you important is that God chose you. What makes you important is that Jesus died in your place. What makes you important is that the Holy Spirit has been given to you. Your status is not in things or popularity or reputation 
vacation or fast cars and big homes. Your identity and status is found in that you are the apple of God's eye. You are the beloved of God. You are chosen to represent him. And by walking in that identity, we find courage. There is nothing to negotiate with this world. There's nothing that we go to the world and say, man, if you don't give me this, then I am just like not going to make it. Like so not. I don't know why I'm talking like a girl. Uh, like so not. That is not it, man. Or whether people think I'm a great guy or not. You know what makes me great is nothing in myself but the God who purchased me with his blood. Sure, you might be suffering persecution of hand or, or persecution of tongue or persecution of heart. But listen, take heart. Because God has worked the miracle of the gospel in your heart. And on the darkest night, you can stop. And you can say, I belong to God. And when you're broken and confused about your own sin, you say, that's all right. I'm purchased with the blood of Jesus. And when you're seeking guidance in your life, you can say, I don't know what's next, but the Holy Spirit will help me. When you're seeking words that you simply don't have in prayer, you can stop and say, God, I have no idea what to say to you, but I know that you have chosen me. I know that you have loved me. I know that because I look to the cross. I know that because I look into eternity. And I know that because your Holy Spirit, even now, is pouring out your love in my heart. I am not afraid. I am no longer angry. I'm no longer fearful. I'm filled with faith when I remember my status, when I remember this message, when I remember this gospel. And if you are not a believer, I invite you to come and believe and follow Jesus. Because he will give you a status that no, tr- no rust can take away. That no thief can steal from you. He will give you treasure laid up in heaven that will never be taken. Jesus is good to those who believe in him. Believe and follow. Don't believe this world. Don't believe this world of its false messages and its culture of death. Believe in Jesus and then tell people, I love you because Jesus loved me. I forgive you because Jesus forgave me. Believe and look to this message. That's what Peter's saying. I know it's hard. It's hard being in exile. It won't be easy until we get to heaven. Amen? It will be hard from this day to that. From this day to the day I pass from this world to the next world, I'm going to have tears and pain. Every now and then I'm going to get sick and have a cough to my cold. But one day I'll get there. And until then, I can keep looking back to this message, this good news. When I, was first, when I first married Sherry, or I should say she let me marry her. I had a dream. I had a dream. And my dream was that I would have a daughter. I could see her. I could see her. Before, before it's like predestination, you know. Before it even happened, I saw it. And when she got pregnant, I knew in my heart, there's going to be another girl in this house. And when she came, she had the longest black hair. I called her Pocahontas at first because she's just long, black hair. Held her in my arms. And you know, when God gives you a dream, sometimes he does above and beyond all you could ever ask for or imagine. And he didn't just give me one. He gave me four. <laughs> Be careful about your dreams. But I remember with each of my daughters, and in particular Abigail, my first one, I looked down in her face. And you know what I saw? I saw a little cleft in her chin. Now, you can't see my cleft because I've got a responsible beard on my face. But there's a little hole right there. And I looked down at her, and I realized in that moment, no matter where she went, she would always look in the mirror and remember who her daddy was. She can go as far away as she wants. She can go marry a man and take another name if she must. 
She can go off to college and not write me enough or call me enough. She can, go, she can even go off and deny me as her father, which will never happen because I'm tall and handsome and charming. But she will always look in the mirror and remember because of that hole in her chin, my daddy is Josh Gutteridge. She will remember. And you know what Peter's saying? The mirror for us to remember our status is the cross. It is the Father who's chosen us, if we're believers. It's the Holy Spirit given to us, no matter where we go. You might even be failing right now. You might be falling down so bad right now. You can still look in the mirror of that cross and see a window into the heart of God for you. He loves you. And if you're not a believer, you're invited to believe in Jesus. He will not cast you away. Believe and call on his name and trust him. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. You're loving and kind and merciful and gracious. I thank you for that. God, I thank you for your word and for your gospel. That we can always look to the cross and see something that makes us yours no matter where we go. How far we run, no matter how hard we fall, we can always look to your son, the sprinkled blood and our obedience of faith to this gospel. We can look to that and be secure. But God, we, <laughs> we need that status to be powerfully applied to the realities of our life and our world, to give us wisdom as we walk in real issues, real circumstances, real persecution. We need you, Holy Spirit, to come and make us holy in the good times and in the bad. We need you to lead us. So do it. Be our shepherd. If you're not a believer today in Jesus Christ, I invite you to believe and then share that with somebody. There's no, there's no magical formula words or some exact prayer you need to pray. You know what? It comes down to you just saying, Jesus, I am not enough and you are. You died for my sins. I am broken and you give me forgiveness and I receive it. The moment you cry out to Jesus... And repent and turn and trust in him, you will be saved. And you will be the elect exile of God in this world. And you will begin to slowly grow. For us believers, let us cast aside anxiety and fears. And let us walk in the comfort and the courage and the difference that this message makes. Let's stand and worship our good God now. Amen. Thank you.